ready? Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Amen. And now the Kiddush, blessing over the cup. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, Borei pri hagahafen, Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Amen. And now the blessing over the bread. Hamotzi lechem min haaretz, we give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together, as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atadonai, Eloheinu melech olam, hamotzi lechem min haaretz, amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Amen. All of that. <laughs> now, husbands, if you will bless your wives. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for the wonderful wife that you've given me. And Father, we thank you and I pour out a blessing upon all the wives on this Sabbath day. I pray that you bless her, strengthen her, and encourage her as she rises in the night to see about the ways of the household. And I pray that you strengthen her as she teaches and educates our children. Father, I pray that you pour out your very best blessing upon her and that you would encourage her in everything that she does. Let her know how worthy of praise and honor that she is. And Father, I confess with all of my heart that I love her and I thank you, Lord, for her. We also bless all of the widows and orphans, those without a father or a husband at this time as well. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. All right, now let's bless our sons. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. Amen. 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 Let's bless our daughters. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ruth and as Esther. Amen. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shalom. Please join us for the Baruchu, the call to worship. Baruchu et Aronai Hamvorach, Baruch Aronai Hamvorach Leolam Vaed. Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michamocha. Michamocha. Ba'eli Madonai Michamocha Nedar Bakodesh Nora Tehilot 
Blessing of Messiah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam asher natan lanu et derech haYeshua b'Mashiach Yeshua. Altogether, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Vishamru. Vishamru v'nei Yisrael et Hashabbat la'asot et Hashabbat la'doratam berit olam b'nei Ovayan b'nei Yisrael oti le'olam. Keshishet yamin asa aronai et hashmayim va et haralets uvayom hashvi'i shvat vayinefash. Altogether, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he ceased from work and was refreshed. Amen. And now the Shema. If you would all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Baruch Shem Kevod Malchuto, Le'olam va'ed Yeshua HaMashiach Hu Adonai Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be His name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, He is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'ahavta. Ve'ahavta et Adonai Elochecha. Bechol levavcha, uvchol nafshecha, uvchol meyodecha. Vahayu hadevarim ha'alei asher anochi mitzavcha hayom al levavcha. Vashinantam levanecha, vidibartabam, vashivtecha, babethcha, uvlechtecha, viderech, uvshuchbecha, uvkumicha. Ukshartam leot al yedecha, vahayu letotafot benanecha. Uktaftam al mezuzot betecha uvisharecha. Altogether, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen.
Shalom, everyone, and welcome to our Arab Shabbat broadcast here at B'nai Shalom. Uh, this week's Sabbath portion comes from the book of Numbers. It's about Korah, and I'm certain most of you are familiar with the story of Korah. This was the fellow who rose up against Moses and Aaron, and it, we, we sometimes call the portion the Great Rebellion. Just to recap that a little bit, set the stage so we understand why we're going to have the Hoftor portion that we have. Uh, Korah was a very prestigious fellow. He was a Levite, and it is believed that um, when he was back in Egypt, that he had become the treasurer uh, in Egypt for Pharaoh, that he handled all of his financial records and so forth for running the country, and that when the exodus came, why he loaded up with his family and left with the rest of the Hebrew people. And it reports to us in this portion that when he began to rise up against Moses and Pharaoh, that he had some 250 princes within the Hebrew people that had shown allegiance to him. And I think part of that has to do with the fact that he was a very prestigious fellow back in Egypt, that he had established himself, was very respected amongst the Hebrew people. So when they came on the Exodus, why he's bringing some of that reputation uh, out of Egypt for it. Now, what happens in this rebellion is that this is a typical, normal thing, uh, whenever you have leaders or a leader of a group of people, not everyone in the camp is going to be in complete agreement with the leader. Some, First of all, some have differing uh, beliefs about certain policies and how things should be done. They have legitimate questions about what the leader's doing with regard to some of the decision-making. But then there's others that are just plain cantankerous. They still have a spirit of rebellion uh, within them, and so they don't, they don't like to recognize authority unless they're the ones that are in authority. And we have a combination of what we believe was all of those elements that was rising up with Korah. So Korah was sowing rebellion in the camp by going around and speaking uh, against Moses, against Aaron, um, for a whole variety of reasons. And there had been a group 
that had risen up with him. And apparently it rose up to where there was enough of a group that maybe Korah thought that maybe a majority of the people of Israel would agree with him in his questioning and in his dislike of Moses, or that there was a strong enough plurality and he had enough prestigious men with him that the rest of the uh, people would would yield to him if he were to assert himself uh, against Moses. And as soon as he comes forth, and in fact, uh, we attribute the key issue that started this thing off had to do with these, the Sitzit. You know, Moses had, according to God, had specified that we were to put these tassels on the corners of our garment and that there was to be a cord of blue uh, that was to be used to bind it with. And when Korah uh, heard about this, apparently he thought this was such a trivial thing and he thought it just was Moses exerting lording it over the people uh, with some silly little requirement. He gave no attribute whatsoever that God had said that. Instead, he was blaming Moses with some little nitsy detail and forcing everybody to do it. And so he used that as the mechanism to come and specifically to complain against Moses. And he basically said the words, you know, have you decided to lord it over us? Now, Moses very astutely understood what Korah was doing. I'm pretty sure Moses had heard what all the things that uh, Korah was saying and what Korah's supporters were saying, and I'm sure people had been reporting to Moses as to what this is what's going on in the camp. And so I think he was aware of what was building here. And so as soon as he's confronted openly uh, about this, why um, Moses poses the question back to Korah, says, okay, Korah, is it that you want to be in charge? Is it you think you should be the high priest that instead of Aaron, my brother, you should be the high priest? Is that what, is that what this is all about? What, what's your goal? What are you trying to achieve? By the way, that's a very perceptive question because let me advise you. Anytime you get into organizational conflict, anytime where you have a challenge to leadership and so forth, you have to go ask the question, what's the agenda? The people, people that are complaining, what's their goal? And here's the fascinating part about it. Most rebellion doesn't have a goal other than to just tear down, other than to destroy and discredit and devalue. That's the primary motivation. It, it, if they had a noble goal, if, for example, they were saying, well, we have a goal that would be better for Israel and for all the people, then they would have followed the normal process of communication and talking and approaching the leadership and petitioning to bring those things forward. But because they're following the tactic, they're following just open rebellion and being seditious, it, they, they don't have that goal. They don't have a good, honorable goal. And so Moses is confronting Korah with you know, is, is that your goal? Is that what you're really after? Well, at that moment, I don't think the court even thought of that. 
you know, I wasn't there, so I don't know for certain, but I'm telling you there's a lot of human behavior going on here. And it's a classic example that we have in the scriptures about what rebellion is and how it works. Now, here's uh, the real background issue that we need to understand about this this thing. Did Moses self-appoint himself to be in this leadership role of bringing the children of Israel out of Egypt? The answer is no. This was the doing of the Lord. The Lord put this on Moses and said, this is what I want you to do and go do it. And the same thing is true with Aaron. Did Aaron choose to be high priest or was he selected and anointed by, by another higher authority, specifically Moses and the Lord? And a lot of times uh, leaders um, that find themselves, especially in spiritual leadership, find themselves in those positions because God has commissioned them. God has put them in that role of stepping forward to lead. And when people come and challenge that leadership, like in the case of Korah against Moses, they're not coming uh, to challenge the leadership of somebody that was elected um, by the people. Uh, They're coming and they're really challenging the authority of God to do this. Now, Did God want Moses to be in charge of the children of Israel while they were in the wilderness coming out of Egypt? The answer is absolutely yes. Did he put Korah in charge? No. Now, we don't know the reasons that God uh, had for that, but we believe that God made the right choice because it's very clear that Korah's ego is getting the best of him in this situation, and he's failing to recognize that Moses is God's anointed and that Aaron has been anointed under the task for it. The authority of the anointing trumps all other authorities. Let me briefly explain for a moment. When um, a, a judge is selected by the people, that judge gets to be in that office because the people have chosen him. They've elected him. Uh, our government representatives, we elect them. They are under the authority of because the people that they represent have given them that authority. But, and, and when it comes to a priest uh, of Israel, a Levite priest, it's from birth. It's, it's the original anointing that was put on Aaron and his descendants uh, coming down that way. We, we don't take a guy and say, well, I think you'd make a good priest. Well, let's vote for you to be a priest. That's not how priests get started. They're born. They, they actually have a physical heritage that originates back. Let's talk about king. Let's talk about a person who's the full executive authority uh, of a nation. Now, you and I, here in the United States of America, we have an election, and we think we elect a president. No, that's not really correct. Let me tell you spiritually what the law is. Spiritual law is God decides who's going to be the president of the United States. God decides who's going to be king of any country. And God openly, boldly says so. He says, I will decide who's going to be the leader of your nation. And the reason why he does that is sometimes he wants to bless the nation, and he uses the leader he selects to do that with. Sometimes he wants to curse the nation, and he chooses a leader for that purpose. If I could give just a modern uh, element of where we stand today, we are in the second year of of President Joe Biden being the president. Uh, 
As you all know, there was some great controversy over the recent election. A lot of people think that Donald Trump won a re-election, and others are saying, no, Joe Biden, he won, and so there's controversies with it. But I can tell you one thing for sure right now. God decided that Joe Biden was going to be the president. I don't care what, what the other controversies are. God wanted it. And I wonder why God did that. Well, based on Joe Biden's performance in his first two years, our country is operating like it's cursed. And there is this deep sense within good people in this country that our country is going down the tubes and we're in trouble. And the blessings have left us and life as we've enjoyed in this country is escaping us. And you remember how we used to say during the pandemic, well, we just got to get back to normal. We're never going to get back to normal. We're never going to get back to where we were before. And oh, by the way, all of the things that we see going on, it's not going to return. At best, it will stay where it's at at the moment, the trauma, the difficulty. At worst, it's going to get worse. Why? Well, it can pretty much be traced back to a lot of government policies are directly connected to all of the harmful things coming to this country. Why would God permit that to happen? Because God obviously wants to judge this nation and the other nations. I personally believe it's because we're coming to the days of the Great Tribulation soon. I believe this is the beginning of the sorrows. I believe we're the last generation. I believe that we're leading up to the Great Tribulation, and it's going to get it even worse in the Great Tribulation. This is a case of, so what's my posture, what's my feeling uh, concerning President Joe Biden? I respect the office of the President of the United States, uh, and because I know that God puts him in there. I don't have a disagreement with him being in there. I know God put him in there. What I have a disagreement with is with his policies and his decision-making. That, as a citizen, I can speak up to and take issue with. I can't take issue with the fact that he's the president, but I can take issue with his policies. Cora had stopped taking issue with the policies that Moses had enacted and instead was coming after Moses personally. That's rebellion. That's sedition. And this is very serious because this can bring about great harm to the nation. Moses knew this. So that's the reason why Moses then put a challenge out about uh, let's bring some incense before the Lord. And we'll see who the Lord chooses. And so if you recall the story, um, God then began to, uh, well, first of all, Moses went out and confronted Korah at his tent and uh, basically said, Korah, um, if you don't suffer a different death than other men suffer, then I was not chosen by God. I was not put in the position I am, and you will prove me wrong if you survive. Well, that's an interesting challenge. All he has to do is live. And he, he's going to win. Well, guess what? God just opened up the earth and buried him alive. 
And he had a very unique death, like other men don't normally have, being buried alive. Well, this was shocking. I mean, it was shocking. And the very next day, that rebellion that he had started, it was still rumbling along. And for some reason, a bunch of people, the people that had been following Kor, that was standing with Kor, got the idea, well, you know, Moses obviously went in and arm-twisted God, probably lied to God about what was going on with Kor, and so we're going to go take him to task. And they proceeded to come marching in toward the tabernacle where Moses and Aaron was at. Now, God had given a very specific warning that if you approach my altar in a contemptuous manner, you approach this tabernacle where I'm at in a contemptuous manner, one that is not respectful, you will die. So here they come. And all of a sudden, Moses realized what was going on, and he commanded Aaron, get up, Aaron, get your censer, get some incense on it, get some fire off the fire altar into it, get your censer into the people the plague has started. God's going to destroy the people if you don't get that thing out there and stop the Lord. We are told that Aaron did do that. He ran out into the crowd. He had to run past all these dead bodies to get to the line of where death was going through all of the camp of Israel. And by the time he got there, there was only 14,700 sons of Israel that died that day. Most of them had been the people who were in cooperation and agreement with Korah. So Korah had died, and a lot of his followers had died, including the 250 princes. Eliminated the rebellion. And that's what it, it took. So great lessons about rebellion, great lessons about God doesn't tolerate rebellion. So with that said, what in the world is the Haftoah portion that goes with this one? Well, for that... We turn to 1 Samuel and chapter uh, 11, and beginning at verse 14 and extending into chapter 12, this is what it has to say. Samuel, who was the last judge of Israel, who was a prophet, had been confronted by the people. And the people, and if you remember in, in the life of Israel during the time of the judges, all the tribes were very fragmented, and it was kind of chaotic. And, but Samuel came in and was able to take a series of the tribes and get them to pull together uh, to support one another and give unity to the people of Israel, although there were still others that were scattered out. But he did a great job of rallying, if you will, the people. Well, in the course of rallying the people, the people are thinking about how do we establish unity, how do we establish ourselves they looked around and they said, well, all the other nations around here have kings. Well, that's what we need. We need a king. Well, you know, coming from where Samuel's coming from, you already have a king. You have the Lord. You have the greatest king there is, God. Don't you get it? Don't you understand the Lord is a king? And, and they, they did, no, they wanted a king like other nations. They wanted a man uh, to be it. And so... The pressure came up, and so Samuel eventually had to yield because it was such a group that were calling for it. So that's, what, that's where we started reading here in 1 Samuel 11, beginning at verse 14. It says this, 
Then Samuel said to the people, Come and let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. And there they offered sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord. And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Then Samuel said to all of Israel, Behold, I have listened to your voice and all that you said to me, and I have appointed a king over you. And now here is a king walking before you, but I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. And I have walked before you with, from, from my youth even to this day. Here I am, bear witness against me before the Lord and his anointed. Whose ox have I taken, and whose donkey have I taken, or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed, or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? I will restore it to you. And they said, You have not defrauded us, or oppressed us, or taken anything from my hand. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day that you found nothing in my hand, and he said, he is a witness. When, when the Lord is king, it's very simple. You get to come and make gifts to him. And he says, I want you to collect one-tenth, the tithe. And we're going to use that to care for the poor of the brethren, we're going to use that to provide for the priesthood that does its duties uh, for the benefit of the nation and for the common worship. In other words, everybody comes and they worship at the temple and there are certain expenses. That one-tenth is going to be adequate to cover all of those needs and all of those expenses. That's what the Lord set up. But when a king comes in, guess what the king's got to do? Well, he needs a palace. He needs to hire more troops. I mean, you do understand you can't be a strong king if you don't have a big army. How are you going to pay for the army? Well, you tax the people. You take their oxen. You take their donkeys. You take their produce. You take the product of their hands. They don't get to have it anymore. It's got to go to the king. Here in our country um, today, our government, taxes the daylights out of us. And their constant mantra is to go tax people who've been successful. Oh, let's make the rich pay their fair share. What they were saying is, let's just go get all our money. So that the government can figure out what new ways to spend it. The, the government has taxed so much money here recently from our country. Did you know it, they've got so much money they can't even spend it fast enough. There's there store piles of monies and budgets, and so they're spending it as fast as they can, and they still can't spend it faster than the amount they have. And guess what they're talking about? We need more. We need to tax more. This is what you get when you get an earthly king. Samuel knew this. He had warned the people. Did I take anything from you? When, when I was one of the judges of Israel, did, did I take, did the Lord really take anything from you? Did you lose anything? I got news for you, folks. This new king that you wanted to have, it's going to cost you. going to cost you dearly. And in fact, if you follow the story from Saul to David to Solomon, Solomon 
built great things, did wonderful things for Israel, taxed the daylights out of the Israelis. And in fact, there was a tax revolt after he passed away. And that was what caused the split between the house of Israel and the house of Judah. It was over taxes from the king. It comes to the point, the more you put men in charge of the government, the more harm comes to the people. The classic ultimate example is the world we're going to agree to try to put one guy in charge of the world. He's the Antichrist. Guess what he's going to do to the people, and guess what he's going to do to the world? There's a reason why he's called the son of perdition, which means the son of destruction, because he's going to destroy everything. And all of the good things we used to have before will be no more. This is the path of destruction and trouble and chaos. This is how nations get into wars because the leadership gets upset and with somebody else. And, 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 and it's, I mean, it sounds oversimplified, but it's the government's fault. And everybody knows it. The people didn't ask for this. Oh, but they kind of did. You see, when they didn't want to honor the Lord and do it the way the Lord had said, and they chose something else, that's when they had trouble. Korah rose up and rallied up a bunch of people to be opposed to Moses and always offering himself as some kind of substitute or replacement for him. That did not work out for them. That turned out to be a disaster for them. And the same thing is true down at the smallest level for us, and that's the reason why the principle of rebellion is so powerful in our assemblies and fellowships. Anytime a rebellion rises up within a fellowship or a congregation, it's going to be a disaster. People are going to get hurt. People are going to lose. It's not for the benefit of the assembly. The so-called noble intent, there is none. It's rebellion. And rebellion brings about destruction and in some cases death. It's not good. We as brethren, Messianic brethren, who know the story of Korah, who can see the history of Israel, what happened to them when they transitioned to having a king, we can see the results. It's a historical record. You would think, since we are pledged to follow the teaching of the Scripture and its principles, you would think that we'd be able to extrapolate out that principle of let's not have rebellion and discord among the brethren. But sadly... I haven't yet seen any of the assemblies really take to heart this principle. Sadly, I've seen splits, disagreements, people give up, walk away, refuse to be in fellowship, haughty, pride, and on top of that, come against men that God anointed them to go and do what they did. And that means they don't really have a conflict with that man. 
their conflict is with God. And let me go ahead and just assure you right now, like Korah, if you get yourself in a situation where you're in conflict with what God wants to do, you will not prevail. You will suffer the consequences. So we see the lesson of Korah. We see the correlation to the people calling out for King Saul. And we can see the aftermath of how, how this all happens when we don't want to do it the way the Lord said. Don't want to follow the Lord's anointed. By the way, you do know the Messiah is the Lord's anointed. Messiah means the anointed one. The world is in a big dispute right now, and they don't want to follow the anointed one of God. So they're going to suffer the consequences in full-blown day of the Lord judgment. The day is coming. Shabbat shalom to all of you. Jude, toward the end of your Bible, right before the book of Revelation. And as you open the scripture, let us turn this time over to the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, once again for uh, your word and your instruction, Father. Father, I pray that the uh, lesson that we would learn uh, on this week from this Torah portion and this Brit Hadashah portion uh, would be edifying to us, would strengthen us in our faith, uh, cause us to um, keep our eyes open, Lord, for uh, all those around us, being mindful of those that are in need of encouragement and in need of um, uh, attention, your blessing, Father, uh, so that we know... um, the needs of our brethren, Lord, to pray for them. So, Father, I pray that this instruction from your word would strengthen us on this Sabbath day. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Our Torah portion this week is Korah. It is the story of the great rebellion that came from Korah, the son of Kohath, which was the cousin of Moses and Aaron. And uh, many of us know the story of this incredible rebellion that uh, he stood up, he uh, uh, rebelled against Moses, and particularly rebelled against God and God's choice and his anointing of Moses to be the leader of the camp, and that this created dire consequences for him, for some of his cohorts, uh, Dathan and Aviram, namely, as well as 250 princes of Israel. And then this rebellion led to another rebellion on the very next day in which over 14,000 brethren and the children of Israel died of a plague because of the grumbling and and coming against God and his uh, choice and his elect of Aaron being the high priest, Moses being the leader of Israel, and the Levi being the priesthood uh, between the common man of Israel and God. And this great rebellion took place, caused the death of many brethren. And we, when we sit here and we watch it, it's a tragic, uh, it's another tragic story of something happening uh, amongst the children of Israel that caused a great amount of death, hurt, pain, and that we have to study these words and these stories and these instructions so that we don't make that same mistake. What is the warning that we have to heed about the people that are in our midst, in our, amongst our brethren, so that this kind of rebellion, this kind of issue never happens again? I remind you that this attack upon the children of Israel did not come from some outside threat, did not come from some overt uh, enemy of Israel that came and went to war against Israel at the outskirts of the camp. No, this threat and this rebellion was stirred and 
came from within, within the camp, all the way to the very center of the camp, the very cousin of Moses, the man who of the sons of Kohath had one of the greatest honors to carry the articles of the tabernacle, namely the Ark of the Covenant, the menorah, the table of showbread. The sages say, sages of Israel say that Korah was one of the men that carried the Ark of the Covenant and that this man is the one who rose up and rebelled and caused a great amount of damage to the children of Israel. That is where the threat comes from. It comes from within. That means we have to be mindful of the brethren who are among us, even some of the closest of our brethren. Now, that's not for us to learn to then suddenly become extremely suspicious of everybody near and around us. When you're looking at and you're having your elders meetings and you have the side eye looking at every single one of them and you're thinking in the back of your mind, all right, which one of you is Korah? Which one of you is going to rebel? And I'm going to act suspiciously within my leadership uh, because I know that this is where the rebellion comes from. It comes from within. Well, no, we need to make sure that we have a sound mind, sound judgment when dealing with our fellow brethren. It's not as simple for us to just suddenly be suspicious and, and to be uh, put off by every single person and, and uh, questioning of everyone's motives and actions and, oh, why did he say that? And we need to make sure we don't react that way. However, we, there are some things for us to watch out for. There are, are things for us to recognize. Now, I brought us here to the book of Jude, one of the traditional readings for uh, the Brit Hadashah portions, the New Testament portions of the Torah portion of Korah. And the book of Jude is a fascinating book. Um, I actually love the book. I love teaching from the book because there is a great lesson to be learned. It's fascinating that this is the last book before the book of Revelation. Now, I wasn't there, you know, 2,000 years ago when they started, you know, uh, putting all the Bible together and canonizing which books need to go where and in what order and different things like that. I do find it fascinating the kind of the way the whole Bible ends in the 66 book order that we have. I'm not going to get into questioning why we have 66 books and it should have been more or should have been less or I'm not, I'm not going to get into that. But I find it fascinating what is the content at the end of the book. You know, when you're reading a book, you, you, things, certain things sort of wrap up. That It's kind of like this is the last things that you need to know at the end of the story. Maybe some of the most important instruction is at the very end. Everything that you have read before has been building to this. And the fact that the, right before the book of Jude, you got the um, three letters of John. It's all about love, all about, look, the, when it comes to keeping the commandments of God, you, you keep the commandment of love and you're good. You're golden. Love God. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's all about love. If you can just get that one commandment of love down and right and correct, then you'll be good. You'll be golden. I love the fact that that's at the end of the book, at the end of the Bible, and that that's one of the, the main talking points of all the scripture. Well, now you come to Jude here where we have an incredible warning for us. Yes, we need to love everyone. Yes, we need to love our brethren. Eat and love even our enemies. But then book of Jude gives us this warning here and says, keep your eyes open. This is where the attack comes from. Now that you're a believer, you might have all love in the world, but there will be sometimes a spirit that will come into your midst that will try to hurt you and cause this great deal of damage to you, to your brethren, to your fellowships, and that this is what you need to watch out for. And of course, this all ties back to the rebellion of Korah. Let me read here the epistle of Jude. Beginning at verse 1, it says this, Jude, a bondservant of Yeshua, the Messiah, 
and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied on you. All right, wonderful, kind welcome to the letter. You always want to have a nice, kind greeting uh, to those that you might be saying. You, you're happy to have be sending them a letter. All right, now that we've got the greeting out of the way, let's get into the meat of the letter. Verse 3, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once and for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Yeshua the Messiah. All right, there's the warning. You know, he's exhorting us to contend for the faith. We have to work for our faith. We can't just get our faith and then suddenly we're, we're, everything's okay, everything's good. Moses, even though they were wandering in the wilderness after rejecting the promised land, Moses couldn't let his guard down that he needed to make sure he was still contending for the sake of the brethren, for the Lord, being the one who is listening to the Lord, the words and the instruction of the Lord, and there's still work to be done. And so Jude here is writing <clears throat> and telling us, to contend for the faith, because we will face an issue. People who have men who have crept in unnoticed, but who long ago were marked out for condemnation. I've received this question before about this verse, where it's like, what is the Lord doing here? Where it's like, if this person is there, some people that there is no redemption for that there is no salvation for them. They've been marked out long ago, blotted out of the book of life, and there is no way that this person is ever going to become saved because the scripture says here that they were marked out from condemnation long ago. I honestly don't have an answer to that question. I do not to where it's like, again, this is a letter that's coming from one man and a teaching. And, and the question is, is that is, is anybody ever too far gone to receive the blessing of salvation and redemption from the Lord? I don't have an answer for that. I would like to think and like to believe that God can do anything in changing the hearts of a person. And that perhaps some people are marked long ago to say this, is the per this person is going to rebel at some point in time, yet they were marked this way long ago, but then I'm still trusting in God's ability to save as being immeasurable and that somebody is ever too far gone, perhaps unless they have blasphemed the Holy Spirit and committed the unpardonable sin. Perhaps. I don't know. I don't have an answer for that. Needless to say, these men are in our presence. They are ungodly. And then this one phrase where it says they turn the grace of God into lewdness. Sometimes some other translations, in fact, I like other translations that use the word licentiousness, where they basically take the grace of God, and the root word of licentiousness is license. They take the grace of God as license to do perhaps whatever they want, act any way that they desire to act, even though they know better, even they know, though they know the grace of God is abounding to them, that it's like, oh, well, I can do whatever I want because the Lord's going to forgive me because I have the grace of God. So the grace of God is always uh, immeasurable, so I can do whatever I want. It's like, no, that should never be our thought process. And that is exactly what is being condemned here, is that somebody that might take the, the grace of God to then do whatever they want, knowing they have the grace of God. 
God does not appreciate His grace being used that way. Continuing on, verse 5, it says this, But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. All right, we're, we're, we're hitting home right now with the Torah portion going on, that there were those delivered out of Egypt, but they were destroyed in the wilderness, out of unbelief. Now, it's because they instead believed the father of lies. They instead believed some other spirit that was influencing them. They did not believe God. And even Moses was not able to enter the promised land out of unbelief because he was consumed by the rebellion and he struck the rock instead of speaking to the rock. And that'll be coming up in uh, one of our next couple of Torah portions. What instead um, is being said here, of course, is that we're being taught. It's like, look, even though you've been saved by God, there are still those that you commit some sort of sin, you still reject God out of disbelief, then punishment will come. So you cannot continue to cite the grace of God for your salvation and for your benefit and your blessing. This is basically refuting the entire idea of once saved, always saved. You once saved, you have the grace of God. You're always saved. You're never going to lose it. Wrong. You can lose it because even the children of Israel, saved by grace through faith, who walked through the Red Sea, still were killed when destroyed in the wilderness. Verse 6. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he had reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, um, in similar manner of these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, who are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. This is even bringing up the fact that there are angels, angelic beings, that were created by God that also sinned and also have been condemned. Even though they were once angels, the messengers of God, the ones who are in the heavens with God, that there are some that have still fallen and then have put in, been put into chains of darkness. Even if the angels are condemned, then we should have every bit of fear that there is that, that once you've sort of arrived as a holy spiritual being before God, in covenant with God, in the very presence of God, still there is a warning for those that might, uh, might commit sin, who might rebel in their heart. This is a huge warning for us that we should be mindful of the, to never think that we have somehow arrived in the presence of God and that we suddenly are then protected from all things and that we can get away with anything that we want doesn't work that way. Verse 8, likewise, also these dreamers defile flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. These dreamers reject authority. The people, these people that have crept in unnoticed, that is where the rebellion comes from, they are, they reject authority. Very clear in Korah, he rejected the authority of Moses. And that's what you'll see when this rebellion starts, is you'll reject whatever authority is in place, even though you might have somebody who built and established uh, an organization, a church, but then some charlatan comes in and wants to take over, rejects that authority, wants to replace their own, and this is the person in which the rebellion is in their heart. They speak evil of dignitaries, or in some scriptures say angelic majesties. majesties. What they do is they actually speak evil of the power of God, of the authority of God, in that in His Spirit He can do all kinds of great things and that you reject 
the very power of the Spirit of God. That is blasphemy. That is the power of the Holy Spirit. That, that, that is rejecting the Holy Spirit of God, the unpardonable sin, that is when, when you, that you might look at somebody and say, man, this person, he's younger than me, and yet, you know, even the Lord, though the Lord might speak through him with the Holy Spirit, I reject God's authority over this person because of A, B, and C. And the rejection of the authority and rejection of the Holy Spirit that operates within the heart of a person, this is how the rebellion manifests. Verse 9, continuing on, Yet Michael, the archangel, is contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know and whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts. In these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain. They have run greedily the error of Balaam for profit and perished in the rebellion of Korah. All right, here's the right down to the, the meat of the, the matter as to why this is our Brit Hadashah portion, because it specifically references the rebellion of Korah. And it's speaking of these uh, supernatural battles that are taking place that are, that are beyond sometimes our comprehension. Talking about the archangel Michael contending with the devil, that the devil is always working to try and take anything, any power of God that, or anything on earth, and he wants any bit of power of God that he can take. That God has entrusted us to the creation. He's given man the dominion over the creation. And that God has even put inside each and every one of us a soul, a very part of God that he's entrusted to our care. And the devil wants to take any bit of anything he can get his greasy little hands on to take for himself because he rejects the authority of God and he wants every bit of power. So it's talking about here where the devil is, is disputing over the body of Moses. Moses who was the man who led the children of Israel. But he rejected the promised land. He did not believe. He struck the rock and the devil. He wants Moses. He's like, that man, mm-mm. He, 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 he sinned and, he, ha- and he, he willfully, defiantly sinned. And the devil wants the body of Moses. And Michael the archangel is contending and saying, no, you cannot have that. Because the devil wants any bit that he can get. And I can guarantee you, the devil is, is contending, especially for those that may have a testimony of being somebody who is holy and who is great, who was a great man of God, because if the devil can take control of a person like that, then there will be many that will follow along. This is why the rebellion of Korah was so effective in its rebellion, because how great of a man was Korah? This man was the cousin of Moses. This is the man that carries the Ark of the Covenant. This is the guy that that is there side by side with Moses in a lot of things. He's from the same family. Their tents are right near and next to each other. Moses and Aaron and Korah, he's, he's right there. He's part of the family. And that's the one that the devil was able to influence? What kind, of, what, what kind of message does that send? That those amongst in the leadership, that's why he's able to get so many people behind him. That's why so many people were included in the rebellion is because the devil was able to influence somebody who was very high up. So the devil attacks twice as hard or more for people like that, for people that are in leadership, the people have, who do have influence. The devil wants them more. 
wants them even more than, you know, some lowly, you know, person and things like that because if he can cause greater damage if he can influence somebody who is on the upper echelon of the leadership or of the anointing of the Lord or the, the fathers or the heads of the spiritual house, the spiritual body. This is why when, when church leaders, pastors, um, uh, priests in the Catholic Church, when the devil gets a hold of them and does great and terrible wrong things, sexual and moral things, uh, sins out of arrogance and greed and pride, then that's when the whole church just collapses when the devil gets a hold of them and the sin is committed there. This is how the enemy is working. This is how these rebellions occur as the attack comes not only from within, it comes also to the higher ups in the, in the entire uh, authority structure. All right, let's continue on. Verse 12. These are spots in your love feasts. Other translations say hidden reefs or hidden rocks. While they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves, they are clouds without water, carried about by winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars from whom is, is reserved the blackness and the darkness forever. These people are led... And they have the appearance of everything is fine, but in truth be told, everything is not fine. You have clouds without water. You have, if you're in a desert and you see a cloud that's coming over and you might be crying out for water to come from that cloud so that you might have rains and you might have water to, to help you get out of the desert that you're in, yet no water falls from it. It gives you that false sense of hope that everything is fine but it does you no good. That's ultimately what these rebellious leaders do. They give you this hope of that then change is going to come. Authority is going to be, uh, is going to, we're going to change the leadership here and things are going to be really good. And then after the rebellion happens, after the rebellion occurs, uh, then there's nothing. There's, there's nothing good to come. So anybody that's caught up in the rebellion, they're let down incredibly by that person because all they ever were acting out of the spirit of the adversary and that there's nothing to be gained after the rebellion takes place. It's like a hidden reef too in your love feasts. This is what the scripture says. It's like a ship going along the way and it's like you're sitting there and you have somebody watching and you're like, hey, you know, everything's good. Waters are good. And then you hit rocks and you hit a reef and it sinks the whole ship. The whole ship can be brought down by this hidden reef that you didn't know was there and all the souls on board perish because of this that was let in, because of these people that are among us in our fellowships celebrating feasts with us, yet they go in unnoticed. Then they are the ones that cause this incredible amount of damage. Verse 14, now Enoch. The seventh from Adam prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them, and all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him." The wise men have spoken against these ungodly men, their actions and the things that they do. These things have been going on for thousands of years since the beginning of time. You go back before the flood, and these are we're describing people that were alive back then as well. 
and that these, are all, these ungodly men have always been with us. Keep your eyes open for them. They don't go away. Verse 16, these are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts. And their mouth, great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord, Yeshua the Messiah. How they told you that there would be mockers in the last day who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the Spirit. All right, verse 16 to verse 19, this spells it out really clear. This is what you're looking for when you're wondering who among us will be the ones who are rebellious. Grumblers, complainers, <laughs> there were plenty of those back in the camp of the children of Israel in the wilderness. Grumblers and complainers. It seems like every other Torah portion, it's talking about how the children of Israel grumbled against Moses. They complained about the water. They complained about the food. They complained about this stinking wilderness. They complained about not having meat. They complained about, uh, about being left to die in the wilderness. They complained and it said it would be better to go back to Egypt. Complaining all the time. Grumblers. People who walk according to their own lusts. This is the sort of thing where you see people among you that all they ever do is work to gain an advantage for themselves, for their own selfish desires. They give false modesty, false humility, because what they do is they speak with great words and then they flatter people to gain advantage. They're like, oh, you're, oh, you're great, man. I think you're wonderful. You know, it's, it's, if you're my buddy, rather than being, you know, uh, rather than respecting the authority that's in place right now, you come, you stick with me. I'll take good care of you. You know, you and I, we're tight, we're close. And, and these are the people that start to give this false humility, this false modesty, and to try and like help prop other people up to join in with the rebellion, only for their own advantage. Not that they're ever really trying to be a blessing or a benefit to a fellow brother, but they're always looking and speaking to other people so that they gain an advantage amongst the brethren. They speak with great flattering words and they say all kinds of great and wonderful things to people, but it's all fake. It's not real. It's, it, it's all just for their own benefit and their own advantage. There will be those that are mockers in the last day. This is the other thing that you'll see. The people that it's like, oh, I believe that this is what the Lord is doing. And they're like, ha, you believe in God? You believe in some all-powerful being in the universe that we can't see that's everywhere at once? And how can you believe in such a thing? That's just a fairy tale. And sometimes Christian faith gets mocked. By others. Now, a lot of times I get mocked by people on the outside of the camp, people we don't associate with. Yet sometimes there's people within our camps, within our fellowships, that sometimes will also mock what someone says. Preacher could stand up there and give a heartfelt sermon, but then all they ever say about that sermon after they're done, they're like, yeah, but uh, he really doesn't know what he's really talking about there. I mean, he really thinks this, 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 and this. And it's all like, I don't, I don't agree with that. Can you, how, how can you agree with that? And, you, and there's mockers among us. This is another example of the things that these people do. The way that they act. This is where the rebellion comes from, from people with that kind of attitude. These are sensual persons, worldly people. Worldly per. I mean, they, 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 they just sort of go in and operate within the world too. And it's just like, and that's where a lot of influence comes from. And, and, and they're just worldly people and they cause divisions. 
They're always trying to divide the flock. They're always trying, which is one of the things the Lord hates. A man, someone who sows discord among the brethren, one of the things that God hates, listed in Proverbs uh, chapter 6 and verse 19, is that people who divide the flock, divide the camp. This is, anybody who's ever been a part of a church split, you know how this works. You know that the division is caused and there's certain people that rile up the division and people that rebel and maybe one elder rebels against the pastor and maybe one group of elders rebels against another group of elders and then you got yourself a church split and you have division within the fellowship and it just doesn't seem like anybody's operating with the Holy Spirit in those situations now, does it? It's because the scripture says that's exactly what people do is woes that cause division are not operating with the Spirit. They don't have the Spirit of God inside of them. They're operating with the spirit of the devil. Their father is the devil, the father of lies. They're the ones, that's who they listen to. That's who they subscribe to in their own worldly, fleshly, selfish desires and what they want. They want power. They want money. They want greed. Uh, they, they want something that doesn't belong to them. They give in to their own lusts and desires. And that's what they really want. They don't want anything else. They don't want to be a benefit to anybody. And that's not the Spirit of God that operates in that way. It says in verse 20, it says this, But you, beloved, this is when, the, when it turns. This is when the instruction, after, after saying all these horrible things about the people that cause rebellions, Jude here is now saying this, verse 20, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord, Yeshua the Messiah, unto eternal life. Amen and amen. This is now what the believers have to do to combat these people, these rebellions. Keep yourself in the love of God. Remember, it says even love your enemies. So when you're sitting there and you're, you're facing them down, sometimes you can't just immediately go to war with them. You can't be the one that then looks like the aggressor when you know rebellion is coming. You can't be the one that, that, that starts the aggression. Keep yourself in the love of God, praying in the Holy Spirit. You need God on your side. They've got a spirit on their side, and that spirit can do all kinds of terrible things. But you've got a spirit on your side that you submit to, that you need to make sure is on your side, that is all-powerful and greater than any other spirit that is of the world, that will cause you to come out and be victorious over any said rebellion. Keep yourself praying in the Holy Spirit, in the love of God, and looking for the mercy of the Lord. God is merciful in all of these situations. Even when somebody else is the aggressor, is the one who's causing all this hurt and this pain, God is merciful to all. His mercy is greater than any sort of justice we can think or fathom for ourselves. That's why we turn this, see these situations over to the Lord sometimes. Or ask Him to the Lord to give us the discernment needed to deal with each situation. And that's what verse 22 and 23 is all about. It's all about discernment. Because it says this, and on some have compassion, making a distinction. When you are in a position of leadership, you have to make sure that whatever you're dealing with that's right before you perhaps is not the spirit of rebellion, is not the spirit of the devil, but is simply somebody who is unlearned, who is needing love, needing encouragement, needing compassion, needing some attention to show the care and the love that they need so that this doesn't boil out and become a complete rebellion. We need to have the discernment to know which situation requires love and compassion. But there are some situations that need something stronger. Verse 23, But others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by flesh. Whew! Okay. 
Some need some love and some compassion, but some, you save them with fear. You put the fear of God in them and you let that, that, that righteous indignation and that judgment and you say, you are going to stop this right now. You might let some, little coarse, some coarse language come out sometimes too. Pulling them out of the fire with fear. Because somebody who is so wrapped up in their sin sometimes, sin has the ability to kill you if you continue to be consumed and continue to commit that same sin over and over and over again. It's like somebody standing in a fire. Does the fire kill you right away? No, it doesn't. It burns and it burns and it burns and it will cook you alive and it will eventually kill you. And man, if you come running out of that fire, screaming and panicking, you'll start catching other things on fire. And this is what sin can do. Some sins in some people is like somebody who is on fire. And when somebody's on fire, you got to do some serious things, things that look kind of scary, things that don't, uh, that, that, that are maybe look a little chaotic, but you better do them. Otherwise, somebody's getting hurt. Somebody's not getting saved. You need to grab somebody. You need to throw them to the ground. You got to roll them up and get that fire out, or you got to throw water on them, or you got to do something to them. And the whole situation is going to be a really scary situation. But the person who's doing what needs to be done is in the business of saving somebody with fear. You need the fear. When somebody's consumed by that sin, some people, you got to get in their face and you got to say, you are on fire. You, if you continue in this way, in, with this sin, with this attitude, you will die and you'll kill others in the process too. And you got to get serious and you got to get scary. And some people need to be saved that way. You can't mix up the two things, the two discernments that you need. The person who's consumed by the terrible, horrible sin, you can't show love and compassion to them. Oh, everything's okay. You'll be fine. In the back of their head, they're like, this guy, I got this guy by, uh, wrapped up. I got his hands tied behind his back, and this guy doesn't know anything about me. He's trying to be all loving and caring or whatever, and it's all like I, I, I got him by the throat. It's too easy because that's the kind of rebellion that's inside their heart, and that's the kind of sin that's in their heart. And that love and the compassion, that's not going to fix that problem either. You also can't go to somebody that is hurting in need of love and compassion who is broken, who is at the end, end of their rope, who is really struggling with a lot of things, but their attitude and their behavior is manifesting as what might look like a rebellion. And you go and you get in their face and you scare them with fear and you just start drilling into them, talking about being on fire and talking about how you're going to die. And if you don't have the discernment for that person needing compassion, then you're right. You're, they are going to die and you're going to kill them with your words and the fear that you put inside of them because they're at the end of their rope. And they're suffering, suffering with depression and pain and all of these things. And they need a hug. They need some love. They need some compassion. And you just killed them with your words because you didn't have the discernment to know what they needed. Because you thought that you're going to fight every one of these battles with that fear. That's, what I, that's how I want to save people. I want to save people with fear. And it's like if you use that as your same tool for every situation, you're going to destroy that person that is needing love and compassion. This is the lesson for us in leadership. You've got to have the discernment to know who among you has truly the rebellious heart and the, in their heart and in their spirit that you have to save with fear and with fire. And then you have to know who is the person that you need that needs love, that needs compassion, who is struggling with their life, and you save them with love and compassion and grace and care and, 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 and humility is who you need to save those with. 
Let me finish out the book of Jude here. Two more verses, verse 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Ultimately, it's God that has to do all of these things. It has to be a stirring within the hearts of the people that it's His Spirit that does all these things. He's the Savior. He is the one who created all of us. And all power and glory go to Him in these situations. Not, you know, we, we might think that the power of our bravado turned that sin around and fixed it. But in, in truth be told, no, it's simply the power of God and it's the wisdom and discernment that He's given to you that caused it to happen. It wasn't any power of yourself. And that you might be the most loving, caring person, but ultimately it was the God that put that, that spirit and that heart inside you to share that love. You're only sharing the love of God. You're not sharing your own love. Your, lo- your own love can't save somebody. But God's love and His Spirit can. That's who we represent and that's what we do. This is all about discernment. This is all about recognition that we need <clears throat> so that we can prevent rebellion and sin coming from within, like it did with the rebellion of Korah. Turn with me now to uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, where this is, this is sort of one of those sort of last little things that, that sort of wrap up this whole, uh, this whole concept of those that are in need of saving, that are in need of this, this love. And, and, and again, this is more of the lesson. Jude, the book of Jude is a great warning, is a great, you know, in-your-face kind of message um, to, to learn these things um, and what to do and how to deal with these situations. And now I want to I conclude here with, the, with 2 Timothy, that Paul here is, is speaking to Timothy. And there's a little bit of some softer language here that can, uh, that can also encourage us as well. Let's begin at verse 8 uh, so we set up what's being spoken here. Remember that Yeshua the Messiah of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel, for which I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains. But the word of God is not chained. Therefore I endure all things for the sake of the elect, and that, also, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Messiah Yeshua with eternal glory. This is a faithful saying. For if we died with Him, we shall also live with Him. If we endure, we shall also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He also will deny us. And if we are faithless, He remains faithful and cannot, He cannot deny Himself. Remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord, not to strive about words to no profit to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God, a worker who does not heed to be ashamed, rightfully dividing the word of truth, but shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort, who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands. Having this seal, the Lord knows those who are His, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. But in a great house there is not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel of honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. 
Flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. This is the lesson for us. We, if we're able to teach, if we're able to come in humility, to be gentle to all, to not get caught up in these useless quarrels, then that is perhaps the means by which those who are in opposition will be corrected. That perhaps they'll escape the snare of the devil. They'll come to their senses that they might know the truth of God. This is what we can do if we can be discerning to teach in these situations. When rebellion is stirring its evil head, when the spirit of the devil is stirring up in the hearts of even our family members or even our brethren, that we have the discernment and the spirit of God to counter that, to deal with that accordingly in what needs to be done, knowing that if we allow certain things to keep going on, this is what causes things to get worse. We know that Korah and his rebellion began with grumblings, complainings, idle babblings around a campfire with, with their fire pans and, and just hanging out. We know this because Korah, Dathan, and Aviram, Dathan and Aviram were from the tribe of Reuben. It's only because the sons of Kohath were camped near Reuben that they were even interacting with each other. And we know that they were just, they, they were conspiring and they were talking and they had all these idle babblings. If you ever hear that going on, you've got to put a stop to it. Why? Because the verse said specifically that. Shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness. That's what they can lead to. More ungodliness. That's what these babblings, that's what these complainings, that's what these grumblings, that's what these mockings, talking about what, what the book of Jude was talking about as well. This is what leads to the ungodliness. This is what leads to the sin. A sin so great that many people can perish in the process. This is what we are dealing with. This is what we have to combat. The scripture has given us all the tools we need to recognize what it looks like. But it's the Holy Spirit inside of us that we need to give us that true discernment of what is true, who is in need of love and compassion, who is in need of salvation by fear and fire, and how to rightly appropriately act in a righteous way in any of these situations. If we do these things, if we submit to the power of the Holy Spirit, if we study the Word and the, His instruction on how to deal with these things, then we can be the repairers of the breach. We can be the peacemakers, and we can be the ones that prevent a rebellion that would cause great harm to a great number of brethren. This is who we need to be. These are the lessons we need to learn. So the rebellion of Korah and Dathan and Aviram and every other grumbling and, and, and testing of the Lord and every other rebellion that has ever taken place so that it doesn't happen again. This is what we as believers, followers of the Word of God, and those that have the power of the Holy Spirit inhabited in our hearts, this is the job, this is the responsibility, and this is what we must do. I pray that this is a lesson that we can all learn not only on this week when this is our portion, but something we keep in mind, keep it close to our heart and, and, and fresh on our minds because the spirit of rebellion can rear its ugly head at any time, any place, 
And we need to be ready and be diligent, ready to combat the spirit of the devil with the Holy Spirit that is inside each and every one of us. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this teaching, this instruction, Father. Father, I pray that you would give us the discernment we need in every situation we find ourselves in. May we recognize the spirit of rebellion, the spirit of the devil, the spirit of arrogance, Lord, when it rears its ugly head, Father. And may we be ready to quash it and to quarrel with it if, we, if necessary so that no one else is harmed in the process in the way that these rebellions happened before. Lord, we know that, uh, that these lessons and these stories are, are tough to watch and listen to and read sometimes. However, we know, Lord, that this is for our admonition, for our edification, so that we can be do great blessings and to save a great number of other people, Lord, in all the situations we might find ourselves in. May we take these words to heart. May we take the heed, heed the warnings and the lessons from the book of Jude and from the uh, book of 2 Timothy, Lord, so that we can be ready and able, Lord, to save a great number of brethren, to be the means by which people come to the truth, come to salvation, and escape the snares of the devil, Lord, whether we are in, whether some are in, inhabited by the spirit of the devil himself or whether people are only merely influenced by others and influenced by the spirit, not knowing that they have been led astray. Father, give us the discernment that we needed to deal with every situation accordingly with humility and with all honor and glory and strength and power to you, and not in the power of our own selfish strength and our flesh, but in the power of you are we able to do these things. We love you, bless you, and thank you on this day. We thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Shabbat shalom. May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of Yeshua the Messiah, the Prince of Peace. Shalom. Shalom.